Greetings, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Robert Cathern, and today on the podcast, we have feature film director Rafal Sokolovsky. Enjoy. Oh, it's going to be like, what, you say something and I respond just the way I feel? So you didn't come with a prepared statement? Is that what you're telling me? I've ri- I, I written in Ionic Pentameter, man. I can sing my story. Okay, well, that's, that's cool. That's a good way to uh, collect your thoughts. Do you, did you actually uh, do any Shakespeare? Yes, I did. Yeah, a lot. I, I really enjoyed uh, working on Shakespeare as a actor predominantly um i've got a weird thing with shakespeare text um as an audience i don't love it a lot of it is lost on me a lot of it, a lot of it is um because the action is arrested and people really take a lot of time to um, express how they feel about things without doing anything about it from the standpoint of modern psychology it feels very ineffective okay. and selfish and actually not on target of what's happening in their lives. It's more about me, me saying these things but not doing nothing about it. So it's weird to witness that as you mean, a director. You mean like you're, you're spending so much time communicating to the audience what you're thinking? Yeah, and doing nothing about it. And so that, that to me rings really false. I think that's one of the facets of, Shakespeare stories that took the hit on time because I think his circumstance is amazing his sense of story is amazing I think his construction of the drama is uh, serving an audience from 400 years ago and so now me as a contemporary audience spoiled by things that um, are action driven um, and when I say action driven I don't mean fast-paced things but doing things which tell me how this character relates to something you know uh, so I get really suspicious hearing you know pages and pages of monologue and something where I say well why don't we get up and do something about it that would tell me immensely more about how much you need this the fact that you're just standing in front of me and telling me how you feel about it over and over and finding this incredible poetry to express this is moving us away from the target in a huge way. So as an audience, I'm not as much in love in absorbing Shakespeare. As a reader, I love the poetry. I think the imagery in, in Shakespeare is just, just stunning and so accurate. Um, so I really like that. And as a director, it's super challenging to combine staging with the language that is so prescriptive and that very often dictates emotions and everything else. So that's a huge challenge. But as an actor, there is a thrill of diving into this language and expressing what you feel through that heightened poetry. That's the most fun. Okay. So, you know... There's probably no better way of getting into the center of the character rather than just diving into that language and committing fully to the language. And then that language becomes a vehicle that really places you there, you know. So you you came to filmmaking through the acting route, correct? I mean, like, so so you're so first of all, let's just tell listeners where you're from Uh and what your name is. All right. So Rafael Sokolovsky and I'm. 
I was born in Poland and I grew up in Poland as a 17-year-old refugee. I ended up in Toronto, then later in Montreal. That's where I went to the National Theatre School. Then I went back to Poland to um, study directing. And eventually I went back to Canada and that's where I tapped into filmmaking. And uh, now I reside in Athens, Ohio, teaching film at, uh, at uh, OU Film School. Um, and the journey is a little bit more complicated because I actually started off um, as a graduate of undergrad in um, biochemistry. What? <laughs> yeah. I find that really hard to believe. Yeah, no, it's authentic. You can, you can look it up. I'm not making this up. Um, I was steps away from applying to a med school. I was fascinated with psychiatry. Um, one of my teachers at one of the labs said, you know, you, you're not really a biologist. And I got so upset. I was like, how dare you? I'm working my ass off. I'm totally a scientist. He says, no, you're, you're connecting dots on this really huge universal level. You're exploring biology from a very humanistic point of view. And that's totally not what we do here. We're, ex we're exploring the nuance, this tiny connection between A and B in order to eventually, you know, shed light on bigger things, but you're not interested in these explorations. You're, you you want to zoom out and look at things like human behavior through biology, which is a bizarre filter, I suppose. And he was right to an extent because as I was doing this, I was also really involved in this independent um, theater group that we set up and I was writing and directing and acting in things and and we won some awards and recognition and then so I applied to a theater school and my parents when they found out they were they're happy they said well okay it's finally you're talking about something concrete we were worried you're going to become a doctor and what's next now you're an artist it's it's you know smooth sailing from smooth here sailing on from here on <laughs> and so that's very wise of you son we support you and um and yes, I've entered into arts from a perspective of an actor. I've um, I graduated from the National Theatre School, and after that, I've you know been acting um, in film and television and on stage and building a career. Uh, but I have always been interested in directing, um, so that put me in conflict with a lot of directors that I was work working with. I always had an opinion about interpretation of that text, and that's that's never. It's healthy to an extent if you've got the kind of um, personality that will allow you to engage without offending anybody, and I don't. If I knew how to get me one of those, I would. Uh, <laughs> and you've worked with me, so you know I'm well, rather well bland. <laughs> we, will, we will get to that, uh, of course. But um, so you never finished your biochemistry degree. I did. You did finish yeah. it. Yeah. See, that's exactly the advice that my mother gave me. Mm -hmm. She said, finish your international relations degree and then if you want to do filmmaking that can be your next step but right. get your undergrad degree first right right so you finish that um the na so national theater school like there is actually a national theater school in, in canada is that yeah, how that yeah, works yeah, yeah. um and is it's, it like juilliard in yeah, manhattan or yeah, something yeah. like that in fact they there there has a there is a collaboration between these two um it's an amazing school it's set in montreal historically it's always been set in montreal i think it had a period where it was moved to toronto because 
The idea was to connect it to industry, but very quickly they realized, no, they need a really cultural center for this school to be. And they wanted to bridge between the Anglophone and the Francophone cultures. And and I think that it's a really great place for it there. And, and it's an amazing school that has acting program, playwriting program, uh, design program, and directing program. And it brings artists from all over the world to work with young artists. And it's a three-year program that is just so spectacular. And I've met you know, so many amazing artists who continue to do great stuff. And so at the end of that, I got this uh, really cool scholarship from New York uh, founded by uh, Eva Fox Foundation that basically allowed me to choose any school in the world, in any discipline, really, to continue my education. And I've always been a great fan of this National Theatre Academy in Krakow um, because I know the city, I, I grew up nearby and I knew people who teach there. And so I've chosen Krakow uh, Theatre Academy to become an apprentice of directing. And I've been assigned to this amazing director, Christian Lupa there to watch him build this six hour long show based on Bulhakov's Master and Margarita novel really yeah and 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 so that was very important so were you involved in that you were involved in that production yeah yeah i was his assistant yeah wow yeah that must have been really exciting oh very exciting that's one of those books that like whenever someone brings that up i'm like oh someone else has read it i get really excited about that because i read that probably five years ago and it one of my favorite novels. I'm not sure if I read the best translation of it, of right. course. Right. But so you said that you left uh, Poland when you were 17 mm-hmm. as a refugee. I mean, so that was during. So what actually prompted that, if you don't mind talking about that? Oh, um, well, a lot Political of factors. Issues. Uh, or? Well, a lot of a lot of factors. Um, this is a year and a half before the change of the uh, of the political system in Poland and at this point nobody really was able to foresee that communism will end and so you know people are talking and as a young kid you pick up clues that in for in my case informed me that there isn't a bright future for me in this country I you know I was really aware of the glass ceiling there and there's, there were a lot of things that I was not looking forward to growing up and building my life, my career in there. And so, you know, so part of that is economy, part of that is philosophy, part of that is just culturally I wanted something fresher. And, and but, but a huge part of this is I wanted, I wanted opportunities. I wanted to do what I wanted to do and, you know, even though at the time I didn't have a clear idea, it's still instinctively understood that if I find myself in a different place, I will be able to design my life the way I want to and not fall into kind of a conformity of what I saw a lot of people fall into in in Poland. So, you know, communism being an oppressive regime at the time and people getting arrested and all that, it 
it allowed Canada to open borders to Polish refugees, and so that is the way... Specifically I, Polish refugees? Yeah, so the way it works is a country opens uh, political borders to other countries based on what the current political situation there is. So not everybody can just arrive in Canada and say, hey, I want to stay here. Right. Um, you need to, you know, you need to come from a country that politically would justify that somewhat, and, you know, and Poland was in that place. And so, you know, I claimed refugee status and settled in Canada and started kind of building my things from scratch there. And by the time you decided you wanted to pursue acting, pursue theater, Poland, I mean, the government had changed, communism was so no longer a, dominant. I mean, is that Yeah, so a, year, so a year and a half after I've landed in Canada, um, the system had changed. And, you know, it, which doesn't mean that the country has all of a sudden changed. It took... I would say about two decades. Right now I go to Poland and it's like, you know, it's integrated into EU and it's really exciting place. Um, but, you know, but it took a long time for that place to kind of find its new uh, identity. Um, so, you know, my return to Poland uh, as part of this scholarship had actually something to do with my ideas of maybe returning to Poland for good. You know, I was at that time about 15 years in in America and I felt this huge nostalgia for my roots and, you know, I kind of felt detached from my own culture. So I had somewhat idealized idea that I will get back and find myself there and kind of thrive. But, you know, it's, it's this idea that you don't walk into the river, the same river again twice. And so Poland has changed so much. I um, found myself in a really new circumstance and quickly started to see that, you know, maybe it's not the ideal place for me. I think it's, it's interesting that the, the the show you were involved in was The Master and Margarita because that was written against mm-hmm. Soviet, the Soviet Union, right? Sure. That, yeah, that was yeah. what the whole it's thing a, was. It's I a mean, propaganda piece against, sure. against communist Russia. Mm-hmm. So, so you dive into this production. Did you have, I mean, other than the group that you had been working with, like how much experience did you have before you got to work with this particular director? Were you going kind of blind? I mean, did you know what you were doing? Were you... Um, well, I've, I've directed some shows in, in Toronto, and um, by then I was already kind of splitting my practice between acting and directing pretty evenly. I was actually leaning more and more towards directing and so it was very productive time being there and watching this master director at work and just absorbing his skill and toolbox and adapting that into so it was really informative eye-opening I would say to see how he worked and how how that was constructed and oddly when I returned back to Canada I, I dove into a couple of theatrical productions but I wrote this one script or play which did not resemble a play at all. It started to dawn on me that I'm writing a screenplay, uh, but I fell in love with it and that was my first film and that film took me around the world and went to many festivals and I totally caught a bug and I wanted to continue and, and writing films and directing films and that was another shifting point in my in my practice where I kind of lean towards filmmaking. Um, was it just because of the limitations of having a stage in front of you? It was just impossible to imagine where you wanted it to go? 
Yeah, it's a good question. Um, or did you have a, a filmmaker that you were looking at? You're like, oh, wait, this is actually suits my creative approach more than what I've actually been working on. I, I think it's 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 a latter. Um, I, I found just new freedoms as to what was possible, and I also like the tensions and the edge of being on set and creating this and not having the long rehearsal process in which you've got a safety line where you can step down and say, okay. We'll, we'll sort this out tomorrow or in the next rehearsal. You know, on film set, it's like you that you don't go back to that setup. It's either you get it and it's perfect or you don't have it. And I really like that edge, that kind of live element. It's interesting because, you know, theater is thought of as this live medium and film is because the final product is projected and kind of it does not change. But the actual process of executing is is really live in film because there isn't a rehearsal process in the same uh, way that it is in, in theater and things need to happen on a day when you're shooting them. So there's this really unpredictable moment where you're just taking the material as is and you manipulate it because you know that's the final, that's the final form it's going to have. And you either arrive at that perfect take or you don't, you know. So the that's interesting. So so do you do you feel like you ha you have to actually take the one of the things that I have to deal with uh, when I'm working on a film is overthinking everything. Now, but when I get on set, it's impossible to overthink too much because you have to get things done. But I've never actually I've actually only ever directed one um, theater piece, and the whole time. Much like you, I kept wishing I could get a camera in there and like get some takes from different angles because I couldn't, at that time as an undergrad, I wasn't able to imagine um, the possibilities of the stage itself. So, as far as rehearsals go, like what was the rehearsal? I mean, do you do rehearsals for your films? Did you do a lot of rehearsal for the short? Uh, what was the short film you said you got to travel? The Cold Light with? Chasers. I. I do rehearsals, but you know, but I, one has to be careful with rehearsals for film. Um, they're very different than rehearsals for theater because the objective in theater is that you create something that will later run continuously for two hours. And putting that stream of events together is a huge part of the rehearsal process. And then that thing, once unleashed, needs to be repeated for many nights. And so part of your rehearsal process is to set up these threads that will continue to grow. You don't want to lock. So, so you don't want to lock certain choices. You don't want to lock certain things so that they're just being repeated the way that they have been found or performed the night before so that there is a growth to it. So that's the live element. So that show after show the actors can find new things in it, you know. Um, you you try to avoid that in rehearsing for film. What I mean is that the, the, the aspect of repetition has the power to stifle certain spontaneous reactions that you'd hope to capture with your camera. And so it's more about informing the actors about circumstance, relationships, without dictating ready-to-go solutions. Whereas in theater, you need to insert some ready-to-go solutions so that 
so that the two hours of events can smoothly happen because nobody's going to stop and fix anything when you have live audience watching it. So that part of this thing has to be carefully rehearsed. Um, you know, but at the same time, you're always mindful of of how will that scene grow? How will that scene transform after the actors play it out 30 times? Is there going to be anything alive left in it? And your objective as a director is to set it up so that it is a journey, so that things are not set from a kind of an external point of view, so that it's like a, so that it has a fixed form, but more like giving it a direction and guidelines and something that will make it not fall of the trucks so that the two hours can consecutively play without disturbance, but at the same time so that it has space within to breathe and be new for the actors all the time. That's a huge thing for me in, in, in rehearsing the theater, and that's why you need all that time to be thinking about these things. Um, and film, or in film, I, I find that once you get into specific choices, there start to limit the um, the feeling of, of spontaneous alive moments in front of the camera. So you want to kind of evoke that reality right when you're rolling camera. Obviously, this is going to be very different when you're looking at slightly choreographed moments or moments that would require that kind of repetition to give actors safety and, you know, and all sorts of things like that. So... Would it be fair to say that with theater, when you're talking about like the live experience, it's more dynamic for the audience than it is for the actual performers because of the repetition they've gone through for the show? Well, that's the key thing is to create. So, 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 so here's the difference. The, the, the rehearsal um, has a root in different languages have different way of expressing this act of rehearsing. The French call it repetition. And this implies a repetition of things, which to me, it implies that it's something that mm, the actors learn to embody and keep that form immutable. That's why you repeat this so that it's always perfect and potentially the same, which to me is a death of that experience for the audience. Because in order for the audience to experience the alive element of it, the actors need to find that alive element of it. That is the, it's essentially, it's a chemistry that changes in a, in a space. It's something that is perceived beyond sight and hearing. It's either the actors find that moment of, I don't know where I'm going, this is unplanned, and I'm just now being in a, in a moment negotiating this. That's what the audience will instinctively recognize, you know. Um, Germans call it proba. It has to do with probing. And so it's nothing to do with repetition. Each rehearsal is about a different exploration on the same theme, but it is about exploring that reality. And what I like to talk to my actors is that performance should be an extension of probe. And so that it is an explorational experience for them. That's what's going to ensure that they're always walking the edge instead of re recreating a moment that has already been done before. Because the level of risks are very different, and that's what the audience perceives. I imagine that kind of classical number from a circus where a blindfolded guy throws knives and there is a woman pinned to a board and these knives hitting to 
close places to her skin. And, you know, usually it's a very thrilling number. But, but ask yourself this, if the audience felt that this is so rehearsed, that there's absolutely no chance that he is going to make a mistake, all of a sudden this number would not be felt by the audience in, 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 in the same way. They need to feel that there is probability of a mistake that puts her in a great danger. That's what creates that kind of spontaneous, alive moment. And that is true for scenes playing out in the theater. So how do you set them up through rehearsal so that they're not locked into a form, but give a, a, are given a direction and sort of a truck, but within this truck, there are so many mistakes uh, that, are, that are possible. Do you find that... Um there's a certain number of takes you can do on set and then after that the performance just isn't as good do, do you do you set a limit for yourself on how much you're going to push the actors and yeah i set a, a limit for myself first take i mean okay well <laughs> no but it's a great question look i because some I, directors do like 20 takes i know and i can't i can't comprehend i don't know how this works because i get so self-aware i cannot help thinking that there's something that I am not doing right. If oh, I so need it's to, your fault. So it is my fault. And the buildup of the guilt and self-awareness that I get beyond take 10 starts to paralyze me. And something happens to my creativity. I just want to wrap this up to prove to everybody that I really know what I'm doing. And it's a negative energy. I get nervous that we're wasting the time, that my AD is getting nervous. I, I really am kind of a sponge and I absorb the vibes surrounding me on, on set. So I don't work super well with this. I, I guess I don't have the kind of emotional stamina to go, no, again, it's not it, no, again. Even though, if it's not it, I will continue shooting on, until we get into that magical take. And sometimes you need to shake things up. Sometimes you need to take a break. Sometimes you need to say, hey, everybody, why don't you just go away and have a coffee break and I need to think about this and come back because I'm just hitting a wall with my head and that's not leading anybody anywhere. Um, you know, but I prefer to get my magical take within the first take, uh, sorry, the first 10, I would say. You know, that's where I feel like we are productive, that the actors are well prepped for this that the material resonates in a right way with them, and that my job is done in a in a good way. That's that's the kind of window about ten takes. That's for me is what makes sense. Beyond that, I start seeing something being problematic, and unless unless I'm able to identify what it is, I get slightly paranoid for not knowing what it is that you know gets in the way here. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about. Uh, the writing process mm -hmm. because that's something that I spent a lot of time with you on uh, last year or last school year for my film we ended up doing 12 drafts of the script mm -hmm. and it changed radically from the beginning because I came in thinking oh, I'm going to make this horror film mm -hmm. and these are the kind of characters this is the conflict um, this is the fantasy element the reality element and I brought it to you and one of the first things you said was don't start with genre mm -hmm. and I and my question was well why not like Wes Craven does it you know mm -hmm. like Stephen King does it like what's what's the what's mm -hmm. the problem 
And the more we worked on the script, it, it completely changed for me anything related to horror and being entirely about the relationship of the mm-hmm. two main characters. Um, the reason I bring this up is because you just directed a feature film that is like got chase scenes and action mm-hmm. and and I, I would say it's within the genre of action mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. How, how did you approach that project? Um, well, first of all, um, the script part of it before you even started rolling. I want to hear a little bit about that process because it's very different from what you've taught us in class and it's very different from what seems to be um, your particular style is is neorealism seems mm-hmm. to be what you really focus on. So how did you get from this script, this action movie script with a neorealist and theater background to directing an action film? I, mm-hmm. it just, it just oh, it's a, it's a huge mistake. <laughs> it's, it's what it is. It's, it's humongous mistake. I think it's really interesting because I, I had no idea what to expect walking into that theater. I purposely didn't look up 22 mm-hmm. Chaser because I wanted to just see it completely raw. And... Uh, you know, within the first couple of minutes, I was just like, "Wait a minute, this mm-hmm. isn't what I expected at all." Did they, did they messed up the reels? Are they are they screening a different film now? Well, I, I know that you, <laughs> you you've mentioned um, Kislovsky quite a bit in class, and I've only seen his Three Colors trilogy, um, which I really enjoyed, and that seems to be something you you always go back to. Was that something that you kept in mind while trying to direct an action film? Were you trying to keep that particular style? Were you trying to bring that? into the genre piece or did you just ignore the genre elements and go for straight character i know this is a lot of questions all mm-hmm. at once but I'm, I'm more interested in the development of the script from when you first looked at it and if you did develop it further yeah so let me get back to your first question about genre period and preferences and um i think there are um, amazing stories within uh, the canons of genre and there's many of them so you tap into whatever you feel your stories should live within i think the problem starts when you start to real um, lean on the genre convention so closely that you lose the sense of character or lose the sense of you know story where it becomes about fixed elements of what that genre brings. And there is this huge distance that starts for me building between the audience and the story when it's so neatly packaged into the genre canons. And so that is part of my um, pushing for not starting with genre pieces in a setup of a pedagogical uh, exercise because that that forces you to think about these characters in much more dimensional space than what genre offers. Um, and then you're looking at relationships, you're looking at psycho-emotional design of characters, you're looking at things that could borrow from other genres, you're just liberated to look at other devices or observations of real life that you want to bring into your storytelling and I think that that is healthy and I think that that is why I'm always looking for in the concepts that land on my desks from students that's why I'm always looking for um, that's something that is not so neatly packaged in genre because then it becomes a projection of the things that you learn from cinema versus projections of the things from real life that is that is fundamental difference for me um, we spend a lot of time in the black box watching films 
And I think that our choices become influenced by what we see already done. And so it becomes a recycling project, a process. And I kind of want to crack this and liberate myself from it. So creating hybrids is very interesting for me, you know, borrowing the goodies from genre, but also really keeping the discipline up of of something that feels real and, and, and reflects life and does not lean on, on genre that closely where, you know, you can get away with not dealing with certain things because that is the genre expectation. Do you know what I mean? And that kind of mm-hmm. um, loosening your responsibility is, I feel, a bad habit for a young writer to approach a story, you know, leaning too much on certain fixed elements. It's like, it's it's like a an architect building and and borrowing from pre-assigned models of what the columns should be like, what the base should be like, what the classical roof should be like, because then it reduces into bringing three three elements: rectangulars, triangle. You put it on top, and and here's your amphitheater. And I want to challenge this. I'm just like, no, let's look at the design of your columns, and what does life teach us about this design, and what do you want to say about this and and so that's why you will always get a kind of an instinctive veto against genre concept even though in the end i recognize importance of tapping into genre and and borrowing elements from but i think that reversing the order where you start from life and then you adapt certain genre elements to highlight that life is a better approach than to start with the genre elements and build from fixed fixed things. It's kind of like having all the presets on your on your um, MacBook Pro, you know. There isn't a full creativity really because the presets are designed in a way for you to already throw in fixed elements. And that's what very often genre approach to writing does for you, you know. You've got these stock options for character, for plot, for resolution, and very often these are not justified just because you lean on expectations. Yeah, in this genre, that's what happened. I don't need to motivate it. I don't need to justify it. I don't need to expose it because we're used to things like that happening in the genre. And that's a lazy approach to writing. And so that I don't want to start from there. You know, that's that's where these impulses come from. And so, you know, that that's, that's vis-a-vis your first question. The second question is, you know, 22 Chaser had a very strong genre design when I came on board for this project. Um, destroying that would mean starting this project from scratch. And that was just not in the cards. Mm-hmm. That's just, that's, that's a very different project. So it was a question of me negotiating genre elements with something that I felt the themes and aspects of that story that felt authentic, real, borrowed from life, something that spoke to me. And, and, the, and the writing process became about highlighting those and, and building from those and not leaning too close on genre elements, which put me into a very difficult position because, uh, because creating a hybrid between a action and neorealist drama is not exactly an easy thing and every turn of the of of the process you find yourself um 
missing the target somewhat because these two worlds are often mutually exclusive. Because if you create something that is really stratified and dimensional and, and, and complex, then it's very hard to throw in an element of an action pursuit into that world without it feeling phony. Or jarring. Or jarring. Totally, so that right. first one has, in a strange way, started to expose the other and started making that genre piece feel very Mickey Mouse. And that was a big challenge of how to, you know, for example, how to justify a larger-than-life heightened language, you know, or, or construction of characters that was a little outlandish. How do you bring them back into reality? And some of that has forced me to make radical choices, which I liked, and some of that was really frustrating because I could not find a way to marry these two worlds, you know? Um, if if I was writing this thing, I, I kind of, I knew how to solve some of these things, but then it became an additional challenge to convince the writer to see the story from my perspective and convince everybody else who was already invested in that original story to see the shift, the tonal shift from a pure action film to a hybrid between that has action elements and neorealist core. Um, and there was, a, there was a mistrust on, uh, obviously, I mean, there's a stereotypical um, viewing of layered dramas as films that, for example, are commercially uh, not very successful. You know, the audience is much narrower for that. And so there were there were actual logistical concerns about is this direction something that we want to do? But, you know, but there's also a simpler answer to how these things are negotiated. In the end, I find for myself, I cannot betray my own sensibilities. And in the process, I naturally arrive at conflicts with the material where me as Rafael, as, a, as an artist, I saw something either banal or two-dimensional or something that did not speak to me and I started to look for complexity and depth within this and started investigating this for better or for worse results but I, I had to do this I could not betray my own sensibilities I couldn't say now I'm very excited with just a bunch of people chasing each other and, and you know and punching each other it, it's not what excites me and so I was naturally looking for these elements within the script um, so that that guided the process in a fairly natural way. So would you say that neo... Okay, so neorealism is often uh, described as being a genre of itself, but you seem to be talking about neorealism as an approach, not necessarily a genre. With, or or it's, it seems almost like neorealism is just the way you want to do everything, and then we can maybe find... Um, I don't know how to even say it, but it, it seems like... Uh, okay, when I think of neorealism, I think of Breathless, right? Like Godard, something like that. Uh, or I think of like really intense character dramas that are people talking and arguing and being betrayed and betraying. And and um, my taste, personally, I'm not really into that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But um, but you're talking about like sticking to that neorealist perspective while directing this action film. Can you talk a little bit about neorealism at large um, and where you think that fits into just how you view filmmaking, generally speaking? Mm -hmm. 
So I think you're right to an extent that it is or has become a genre in itself. I mean, it's been alive for 70 years. And so there is different waves of it. You know, I'm much closer to what you would call neo-neorealism. Uh, it's a phrase coined by, um, by Scott. Um, um, but, you know, what are the elements of it? Um, you know, the slice of life, which is really a cliche term, but it's something that I is very important for me. So in the construction of the mise-en-scene, the behavior and objectives, I really take a, a, a multiple factors and so that, you know, try to tap into the realities that I observe in real life um, so that, you know, I guess the nuances of uh, socio-economical, political realities are expressed uh, in the narrative so that mm, so that there is time to observe all sorts of other processes that are not concerned only with the storytelling, so that the behavior is much more invested and so that there is a good dose of observational drama weaved into the kind of straight narrative or straight kind of dramatic structure. But you know, those are elements. I think you're right in pointing out that my sense of neorealism is probably tinted with a lot of elements from various genres. And it's just my interpretation of how I understand what is the current naturalism really. What for me feels real on screen and that's that's the bottom end what is it that I trust on screen now is informed by so many things because this changes I look at films that were made 15 years ago and the style of acting is betraying the, the, the time when they were made uh, and so it is that kind of pursuit of what feels trustworthy right now what feels invested and trustworthy right now is what I'm looking for. So running with the evolution of what that performance is, is very much a part of my understanding of neorealism filmmaking right now. And then you come at this from political standpoint and looking at the types of stories that you wanna tell, then you're looking at the kind of, you know, underrepresented and underprivileged um, characters and, you know, world situations that you wanna expose that, that come with it. But, you know, but those are elements and, and aspects. I wouldn't say that I might have suggested that it, it's some sort of a pure form that I'm practicing. And you are rightfully pointing out that actually it's got its own biases. So, so you're aiming at naturalism. I'm aiming at You're naturalism. not aiming at what is associated with neorealism. A movement, yes, absolutely. So, so you okay? That, that I think that's the distinction that I was looking for. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes sense. I think these isms are very useful, but also very limiting. Right. And so, and they they're changing so much. You know, you look at neorealism that came ten years or twenty years from from Romania, and that's a whole different aesthetics than the neorealism that came from. Uh, China or or um, or Korea, you know, really different sensibilities, and so, you know, but it, it's it's a, it's a pursuit of something that feels fresh and natural, and something that is 
trustworthy for lack of a better word so that when i watch it i recognize something that comes directly from the life that i live in okay versus a pro- cinematic projection that i i am aware of and conscious of it's a language that is a little bit more spontaneous it's that life element of performance and stage that we are talking about earlier versus something that is designed and and is uh, lives in pantomime or in shakespearean iomic pentameter Mm-hmm. But that that style of acting, that style of performance, that style of storytelling, there's a hard line between being able to achieve that in film and being able to achieve that in theater. And it, even just hearing you describe it right now, I'm like, oh, well, this makes sense that theater wasn't going to be a priority for Rafal for very long. When it comes to directing, though, how much of the stylistic um, concerns of a film do you focus on? Because the kind of films that I really enjoy are very stylized, are very, um, I don't know, I guess that's really the only word to describe them, where it's sort of like a hyper-realism or a symbolic mm-hmm. version of reality. So I'm trying to get to the the reality of an experience with the character through a more grandiose visual palette. Mm-hmm. Um, 22 Chaser in particular seemed um, visually like a little desaturated, um, it looked like there was a lot of fluorescent light in there, which mm-hmm. I guess is just natural for you shot it in Toronto, correct? Yeah. Um, and and even the the way the camera was moving also seemed in the more um, uh, the main character uh, Ben was that his name in the mm-hmm. in the film when he's going about like his job, you see the camera was pulled back. There were a lot more wide shots. It seemed pretty locked off, or there's very little movement. Um, when there were uh, action scenes, chase scenes, you were like right up in his face or right up in the side view mirror or like in the truck with him when things were getting real. So you weren't trying to capture the action of this. It didn't seem like you were going for capturing the blocking or the action of the scene. It was more just trying to stick with the character's experience of it. So, so this is exactly along the lines that I'm, you know, that I'm talking about in a strict canons of genre the speed of these trucks the dynamics of the chases is the focus and that's genre and i wanted to subvert this and i say i want to see a real human being behind a wheel in that circumstance and i want to tap into a psycho-emotional reality of a person who's doing that for me felt like a better spectacle than watching uh, wide shots really put together of 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 you know, of big trucks chasing streets. I just don't respond to them. This is where I could not betray my own sensibility. And, and naturally that becomes the focus of what what you see on the screen. You know, that's kind of what I wanted to do. Just like I wanted to put a character into a genre that is not a superhero, that is absolutely a normal you or I, and see how would that character really respond to somebody who breaks his wrist. Mm-hmm. You know, versus right. a scene from Die Hard where guys, half of the film running bare feet with bleeding, <laughs> you know, it's just different. I just don't respond to it. I don't know. You know, I just I just feel like it's the, like I, I'm so aware of this entertainment factor of it. It just removes me. This is where I have time to, you know, dig into my bag of popcorn and chew loudly because it's just that that's how removed this is. And I wanted to subvert this. I wanted to create a sensation where we are responding to 
the scenario that genre introduces from a perspective of a normal human being and and see how you know so see how how that works you know what was that relationship like with with your dp then did you ever have any conflict about like hey this is a better way to shoot this scene and then did you fight for a more stripped down approach because yeah we we always fight about this because my aesthetics are exactly come from kind of social reality social commentary this is where you know this is this is how i would like to show my worlds to the audience it's kind of it it's like it's de glorified it's like the grand cinematic aspect of the image is reduced into something very pedestrian it's it's more about the implications of what you see on screen than the package and and cabot looks at it slightly different to to, to him there are certain fixed mandatory aspects of of cinematic language that need to be there otherwise he feels his work is not performed well and out of that conflict comes out very interesting solutions because i think he calibrates my eye a little bit and i calibrate his eye and so it's a it's a good kind of tension from which come i think sometimes interesting interesting things you know but you were talking about you know stylized approach to film you know I feel that I kind of got my fix of that when I was doing theater. Moving to film allowed me to strip the symbolism, the expression, and allowed me to just observe something in real environment, almost like nature films, except well-designed psychologically and morally to tell a story. Mm -hmm. But without allegory i think it's for fair to to say right now i'm really opposed to allegory and that's just because i don't respond to allegory anything that that creates a one degree of separation between me and the subject the way i watch it to me it just puts me into like lean back and relax you're in good hands this is really well designed this this is a package to it this is gonna last 90 minutes get, get your popcorn it's worth $12 admission ticket and I can't forget those things. But the other approach allows me to really submerge myself in these in these realities, you know, the more kind of documentary approach to it. And that's that's what I'm practicing currently. But, you know, there is no fixed rules and there's no to say that if we had this conversation in 10 years I would come full circle and say right now I'm all about design and colors because that happened to me in my life you know right. if we had this conversation 15 years ago where I was like oh screw naturalistic dialogue this is all about metaphors and heightened language that's what I was into and I was writing stuff like that and and I really at that point was totally into this so mm. That commitment is a changeable thing. And I think one has to know this, to be humbled by this and not climb that high horse and say, oh, that's the way to do it. I know why I enforce that on students here, because for me, the pedagogical value of working with life itself as a medium is very important for the craft of writing and directing that is more useful for me than a genre pieces 
which allow which allowed some sort of break or freedom from that discipline and that's why i do it partially because it's also preferential i I think I have a better understanding of these stories. Yeah, it's your wheelhouse. It's my wheelhouse. And so naturally I tap into this. But partially because I think this is a really good training ground for any writer to get their muscle exercised. If you can write a convincing, naturally appearing character with concerns for the world, the backstory, the relationship, the psycho-emotional, then I think that equips you so well to write characters for horror or action or any other genre. I think you're coming out with the full package versus if you re-exercise throughout whole your life a canons that live in a horror film, uh, I think that, that limits you in terms of swinging into anything else. So do you, do you have a particular teaching philosophy? Yeah, hit them, <laughs> hit them so hard because, until they stop crying and then tell them what's wrong. Right, okay. So, uh, and it's very, very accurate. Uh, it seems like um, one of the biggest criticisms that I hear like through the grapevine mm -hmm. is that um, I'm not getting... I'm not allowed to make what I want to make. Right. Why can't I right. just make the film I want to make? Right. right? And you never let us settle. I mean, I was ready to roll the camera on on draft eight, oh. and you just kept saying, no, come back next week, and let's work on this. No, come mm -hmm. back again. Until finally, around you know 12th draft, it was just like, okay, we have something here. And then from even there, it's like, okay, now you have the footage. How's your cut going to change, deciding on what you, you emphasize? Mm -hmm. The experience of having to write that over and over and over again and not making the film that I originally wanted to make mm -hmm. made me very resentful mm -hmm. at first. I was like really, really not happy about mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. And then I made the film, and then when I finally got to the end, I was really glad for the experience mm -hmm. was, was more what I can come away from. Mm -hmm. The directing actors class that you taught mm -hmm. – that was also unbelievably difficult because I think I think what I, I I didn't come up with a proposal fast enough, and you said, okay, well, there are, you have three actresses, so you need to come up with a script that has mm -hmm. three mid twenties female mm -hmm. actresses discussing something. Mm -hmm. I had to go to the library and talk to Lorraine to find a script mm -hmm. that actually worked, and it was brutal. Mm -hmm. Like that was that was not a fun assignment at all. But I do remember, and I. Um, how much time we spent in that class just watching you direct. Mm -hmm. What were you trying to do by having us just observe the process? Because I know, because you said that the guy you worked with in Poland, you got to observe the process mm -hmm. and get really up close there. And I noticed that's a big part of how you taught the directing actors class. Was that to get the actors used to it? Or was it to get, to show us an example of how we might be able to engage with actors? I mean, because that's, that's a really, because it's different for every actor, different for every director. Yeah. So let me go back to your first question. Um, I think that is exactly a great model for my teaching philosophy um, with regards to challenging your story um, through the process of writing. I think this is exactly where you as a creator need to arrive at the very clear definition of what story you want to tell. So. I don't expect you to confirm and start making my story. 
I expect you to come in and engage with this creative conflict in, in and through this process. So you want it to be conflict. I, I you, want it to you be want conflict. it to be conflict. I, I, I think I think that conflict has incredible potential for you to articulate your own vision and finally come out with this and come to a clarity as to what it is. And, and it's not so much about the conflict for sake of conflict. It's the right kind of challenge that will force you to articulate certain concepts which otherwise you would be taking for granted just because they live in your head. They don't need to be expressed. So through all these challenges, this is exactly what I'm hoping for, is for you to arrive at the good understanding of what your story is. If you're letting go of your original story, something is wrong. This is where we need to engage in a conversation. And this is where I constantly bring in discussion about subject and theme to really understand of what is it that you want to do. And same with tonally, you know, with tonality, you know, because, it, you know, obviously you can't be making the film that I want you to be making. This is not, you know, and if this is a, by, you know, a byproduct of what we're doing, then something needs to be calibrated on my part. And I acknowledge this. With the directing with teaching the directing uh part of the observation is because i don't think that there is a formula that one can just present when it comes to directing because it's such a unique approach to how do you dialogue with artists how you negotiate with the material um, and so by allowing you to watch me and make my own mistakes and tap into my strengths I am hoping that you are translating all these things and transposing them into your own sensibility. What would you be doing in these moments? How would you approach this? And and that's and that's what I'm hoping is happening within these first days of, of working before you're being put in a spotlight and having to do this by yourself. So it's kind of setting the stage a little bit. It's a little bit for the actors as well to get used to the idea of like now they're going to be entering into a specific project with this one director and his vision and his ways of working and then switching to a completely different director and different ways of working. And how does that work, you know? Um, but, you know, but really a lot of that is to do with you know, with me truly believing that there isn't a formula that you should be teaching a director. Um, I think that, uh, uh, you know, awareness of their own vision and the goal and the objectives that they have should dictate the path that they need to take. But they need to be discovering this and rediscovering this for themselves, you know. So through the mode of doing, that's for me the best avenue rather than unfold. Because if I was to unfold methodology, then by default, I would be focusing on a single method or a group of methods and presenting a limited aspects of things. In doing it, there come so many different challenges and problems and issues that it, it, it forces me to be really stretched and address many things. And on top of it, taking questions from observers allows to open that conversation to be even broader. And that's kind of my approach. To so, it. so it's not at all, watch what I'm doing, this is how you should do it. It's watch how I'm figuring this out. You also have to figure it out. Absolutely. So, so you're going back to the, the probing thing with the German thing. You're, mm -hmm. you're always exploring. You're always trying mm -hmm. to find those things. And it's it makes sense that you say you want, if you didn't stick with your original script, something was wrong with it. I'm now, th now hearing you say that, I'm thinking 
you need to be able to defend your decisions. Mm -hmm. And every time you gave me a suggestion, I didn't like it. Mm -hmm. It then forces me to say, no, this is how I want to do it. And this is why. And this is why. And that is so hugely important for you to come at this articulation of that. Because it's a one thing to sit on an instinctive feeling about this. And it's another thing to arrive at full comprehension of what it is, what it serves you, and why it's important for you. Because that's how you arrive at really grasping your work. The self-awareness of you as an artist and the awareness of what the work is, is, is at the core of what I'm trying to teach. And that's where the conflict becomes a really invaluable pedagogical tool because we're cutting right into heart of things without bullshit. We're fighting vision for vision. That's what we're doing. And I expect you to be the mature artist to come vis-a-vis and say, hey, even if I don't know what it is, give me a week, I'll come back and I'll tell you why it's important. And we'll have this conversation. And I guarantee you, Rob, if that happens, I'll back away. I recalibrate my own vision of your film. I, you know, And if I don't, then again, we have a problem. You know, We're all humans and these things happen quickly. Sometimes I'm seeing six people in one day, so it's hard to change hats. But that is the guiding principle. Mm-hmm. It's not to say, I know best. I, you know, it, it, it's really about forcing you to arrive at your own and own it. This creative ownership is hugely important for me because as you get into more complicated projects you will see that there's going to be a lot of artists maybe more senior in in ranks and they will come in with the ideas and it's so important that for you as a director wherever you turn you're capable of defending your vision and these mini conflicts you have been there you have fought these fights with me you you know that it's important to, to 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 stick to your own vision and you know and defend it. And so. Well, and it also seems like that's that's good training for dealing with producers. Sure. <laughs> Consequently, that's <laughs> that's a great and that's and that's a, a you know another um, stage in your development where you uh, will inevitably arrive and you will have to deal with these forces. And so that's where that's where I feel. And this experience, even though I understand maybe at times unpleasant, is really equipping you with something quite tangible that you would be able to walk out with and walk into a room of seemingly unsupportive voices and deliver the vision the way you want it. And you're not going to be collapsing just because all of a sudden the people you collaborate with don't support or don't see your vision the way you see it, which may be a very off-putting experience. So that's my, you know, pedagogical core. And I know that it puts me into a very strange position that I'm kind of in fight with a lot of people. Well, you're responsible of, for so much. I mean, you got, you got a class of 10 to 16 students that have their own idea of what they want to do and then they have to test. I remember we had one discussion on on my last film where you were recommending a more psychosexual approach uh-huh. and I I did I didn't like I was like I was like that's not what I'm going for mm-hmm. what am I going for and then when I finally hit on the fact that it wasn't about sexual gratification it was about creative validation mm-hmm. then suddenly you went okay if that's what you want to do mm-hmm. then you need to have this in your script it doesn't have to be this and that's when I stopped like resenting 
your mm-hmm. input because for a while there, I was just like, I'm like, is this guy going to let me make a movie? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but I mean, so the hope is there, Robert, because I have to wrap up. I have to run to this, so we could think about scheduling part two if you want. Yeah, absolutely. Follow up, that would be great. Um, but that's exactly what is so. What is what I'm hoping uh, would be happening is that you have that moment of aha and then it allows you to you know articulate and take a whole new direction um with awareness you know that's 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 kind of that's kind of it it's not that i don't want you to make your own film it's just that i'm very demanding in terms of you not taking for granted what's inside your head and having to really clearly articulate this for somebody else mm-hmm. which is one of the most important jobs of a director on set and in prep that's that's a key thing if this skill is not in place it doesn't matter what your vision is you can't execute this by yourself you just can't okay right. we'll take a break absolutely all right yeah we got it cool. thanks so much yeah so i wanted to uh ask what the process was like to switch from directing shorts to directing a feature film because this is your first feature film correct Correct. 22 chaser so did did you i'm sure you went in with nothing but confidence and you were just ready to knock it out of the park and everything was smooth sailing the entire time right that's exactly what happened it's nothing to say it's not there's you know there it is just publish that okay (laughs) it's accurate uh no couldn't be further from the truth uh everything is different you know the, the the timelines are so different on short and feature and so it's it's a big you know um, transition to fit into this new machinery and because 22 was made by three really established producers they're tapping into industry standards of making stuff and I come from completely indie world where I've so far have designed my own process of creating a film so now recognizing what they expect at every stage from me and and how the preparation works and where certain elements come in into production was you know eye opening and i've learned a lot just from that but i would say the biggest thing is how removed you are from the agents that actually materialize your vision on all aspects of the production starting with locations, casting, with uh, production design, with sound, with, you know, it, it is much less available to you than it is in a short film where it's usually people who you know or you have access to them and you can surround yourself with fairly small group of people. Here that group of people is much larger and, and, and you have access to them through these production meetings which are attended by everybody and so it feels like three, two, one, go. Now say everything that you know about what you want in terms of set deck. Did you get to choose any part of your team or was it kind oh, of everybody. Hand- oh, no, no, no. So, so you did have control over that. It oh, wasn't yeah. like they just threw you into an existing production team. No, no, no. I've, I, no, I, you know, just so just to clarify, I, you know, I came on board about six months before we were shooting, so I got to work with the writer, and and I was a spearhead in, when it comes to assembling the whole team. Um, and so I've interviewed these people. I saw their presentations of, 
you know, their portfolio and, and, and projects for this film. And so this was a really lengthy process of assembling this this group of people. Um, but still, when it comes to it, they're, you know, they're much less available to you. You can't, it, it doesn't work the same way where you just kind of, oh, let's meet at my house, I'll cook dinner, and we'll have a whole day to really look at different aspects and everybody talks about things. The way I used to make shorts. Um, Right now, all of this is very carefully carefully scheduled because, well, you need to be in many places all the time. So, as a director, you you, you run out of time in your day to meet with everybody. But also, so 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 do they. They have large departments to run. So, it's like an intense moment of downloading or uploading the intelligence or the information about your vision to them. And there isn't room for calibration of it. There isn't like a discussion after, or oh, have I understand you correctly? So you have to be very careful about the language that you're using because very often you just, oh yeah, you know, I want this to be this kind of thing. And they run with it. And very often it's too late to undo certain things. Or if you want to undo certain things, it takes time and costs money. And um, so it, it calls you to be very responsible about your own preparation and very responsible and disciplined about how you express things. Because so, so there is a production designer and in the meeting he has a costume person and a set deck person and a prop person and this and this. And you're talking about things and there's like five people making very careful notes. And the next meeting we have, these things are actually material mm. and you can't allow yourself to go well no I said this but I didn't really mean it if you didn't mean it there's something off with the way you understand your film and so the way that you understand your own vision which ties into a lot of the things that I've said before in our conversation that that articulation has to be pushed to the limit because not only it has to be accurate but it has to be inspirational it has to set a direction for them to go, wow, I, I like it. I can dive into this and come up with cool things. You know, they you want them to exit that meeting, not just knowing what you want, but be fired up about this. That's going to produ- produce much stronger results. But at the same time, all of this needs to come together. So you're not just chatting about this and this loosely. It has to be, you know, under the same organizing umbrella, which again comes down to how well you understand your film. Um, same when it comes to casting, you know, you, you can't make an offer to an actor and then sleep on it and say no. Right. Um, so it's, that, it's is like le- that is legally binding. Uh-huh. That means the producers will have to pay some amount of money for breaking that offer. Offer is a binding thing, legally binding thing. And so the decision making, which for me, is really difficult because I go back naturally I go back on a lot of my decisions once I actually articulate a decision and see the repercussions that brings uh, additional intelligence for me and that's what sometimes makes me want to go back on these ideas that is not that cannot be a part of this process. So once you arrive at that decision, you really need to arrive at the decision and be certain of your choices. That, you know, reduce... And so it depends on your process. If you're kind of a tweaker the way I am, it's it's very difficult because I like to 
try things and pull back and experiment with things. Experimental filmmaking and uh, a mainstream production are really mutually exclusive. That is the uh, that I would say is the biggest thing. Even though I would never call myself an experimental filmmaker, my production process is very experimental. What I mean by that is I'd like to put my ideas forth and test them and then see based on the results whether this is indeed what I wanted to do, which is a very comfortable and privileged process. And that process is removed when it comes to much bigger uh, production platforms because you, because you can't be swaying. You mm -hmm. have to know, you know, it's like commanding a ship. You can go, let's go left for three weeks and I'm gonna come back and try right. No, <laughs> by the time you do it, you run out of food and water. So you need to know. Right. So do you, do you feel like your, your director's kind of toolbox was more limited, even though you had a bigger budget and a bigger project? Or did you have to find different places to use the experimentation that weren't, you may not have used them on a short film? I wouldn't say it was more limited. I would say it was challenged in a greater way because now my ability to project what certain choices on all levels will yield as the final product are stretched to the limit. So I had to really see the film almost proverbially frame for frame, including sound. And, I, and that's, that's a directorial skill that comes incredibly handy because actually when you go that far in envisioning the film, you creating by default a lot of room for changing because on set you can change things if you know what that last minute change is going to how it's going to impact the overall vision. If you if you know that, then you've got room to maneuver, but you have to know your vision really inside out in order to be able to kind of shoot from the hip and improvise on set. So that directorial skill, I wouldn't say was limited. I think it was like every single tool that I had in there had to be pulled out and applied in order for me to somehow, you know, get to the place where I needed to, to get. Do you still, so one, one of the things that you, you brought up uh, last semester was that everything in a short film needs to point to everything else. Everything has to, everything has to be related. There can't be an accident. Like I remember mm -hmm. you asked me why my main character had this particular job. And I said, well, it, it doesn't matter. He said, no, no, it does matter. Like that main character's job has to be directly related to the story you're trying to tell and the conflict in the story. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, it sounds obvious, you know, when you talk about it, but I had never thought of it that way before. When you have a feature, are you still trying to maintain that same unity of vision with how you structure everything? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and look, it's not that you cannot break formulas. You know, I, I, I hope this is clear from what I'm saying, that the formulas are there to guide, guide you, to, to create a platform on which you can you know, create a, a concrete grasp moving forward and bring unity to your vision. But like every formula, you can deviate from it if you know why, you know. There is a great example, um, four months, three weeks, two days is a Romanian neorealist narrative in which there's this motif of a knife that goes nowhere. And there are so much criticism vis-a-vis uh, -vis that choice and, and and the director said that he purposely put this in there you know he wanted to create a motif that goes nowhere because he perceives neo-neorealism being that nuanced just as life 
that there are random things that pop in and they go nowhere. And yet they're a part of the story, but go nowhere. But that's a different thing than not being considerate about what elements like that do in a film. So, in other words, I would approach it with a aim for unity. And then if I wanted to break that mold and bring random elements to it, I think it's totally possible. But it's a different thing than just to kind of say, hey, I don't need to investigate why these choices, they're just random choices, because before you know it, that thing gets so broad. If you think about it, that's just 90 minutes of time. So that narrative is very selective as to what it touches on, and it should be um, united in terms of uh, you know some sort of organizing principle. So even if you step off that platform, you jump right back on it to keep going forward is kind of what you're saying. Yeah. You still use it as a guiding principle, even if it's not law. Yeah, so th- right? that's that's the best way to approach it. It's a, it's a, it's a guideline um, versus a law. So the, I, I never believe in these principles that are kind of immutable. That's how you do it. You cannot do it. It's not that. It's, it, it's like, you know, I teach a lot classical structure. And I always want to emphasize, and it never works. I know that students look at me and go like, oh, screw this, classical structure my ass. I, I want to be free. And I, and, I, and I understand this. And it's just what I'm trying to avoid is a rebellion against something that you don't know. And so embracing classical structure actually gives you a better jumping point to subvert it mm-hmm. than not knowing it and subverting what. It becomes then about just ego of you perceiving yourself as completely unique and original artist without concern for what's been done before and how things were organized. And I say aim for creativity and originality, absolutely. Just just I don't think you can do it without being aware of what's been done before because then it's, it's just in your head you're being original. You're actually not. And you're battling against something for only reasons of kind of ego thing of, of wanting to feel like you're original without really being original, you know? Mm-hmm. So those so those are the kind of things that I'm thinking of. And so looking at these things is more like principles that can be challenged and can be replaced, but they're there to guide you and to provide some sort of a departure point. Well, it's also recognizing what has worked for other filmmakers. You know, like, why would you argue with someone who's been successful using this particular style or, or writing in this particular way? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And if but you're it's a student. also absolutely, and and also you know scrapping the whole model is also to me a kind of a mistaken. When I say ego driven, what I mean is emotional choice. It's something that is like, oh, it's bad because like I, I have feelings about it, and that's it. You know, because it's it's so difficult for me to believe that nothing in the classical structure works for you, and it's actually reading stories um, f- from people who are really opposed. I find a lot of classical elements in them and so it's hard to believe that the entire model is out to lunch so it's a question of getting to know it and saying oh I know why I'm opposed these elements of it whereas these elements work but the why this doesn't work can inform you what is the direction for your originality then do you know Mm-hmm. It becomes informed originality rather than just emotionally fed originality, which is, which is a very different thing. I think everybody should aspire for trying to capture their vision in a unique way. Absolutely. Um, you know, but but within within awareness of what's been 
done. When you cast the film, um, I'm guessing you started with the lead. Yeah. The lead actor. Okay. Have you, well, actually during this process, and you don't have to name names if you don't want to, but uh, did you ever have to deal with an actor who did not share your perspective on the character and what needed to happen? And if so, how did you get around that? Or how did you make it work for you? Or you can, I mean, speak more broadly about yeah, that. Yeah, no, no, I can, I can, um, absolutely. You meet a lot of people who come into audition room and misinterpret the material so radically, you know, that it's either a lot of work to get them back on track of what you want to say or changing your vision or not engaging with them at all. And yes, I have met a lot of people that, that it just, it, you know, it's, it's nothing to do with the quality of their art. It's just, you know, not a good fit for this material. This material is not meant for them. Maybe the um, duo of me and them is not the right one, maybe not at the right time. But the point is that by the time you're making an offer and assembling your cast, um, that is no longer the equation. You are surrounding yourself by people who um, understand this work and who are a good fit and can work with you. That's that's the audition process. And you need to be certain that this works on many levels. That's why I start with a lead, because to me, it's a pyramid. Um, I need to find what's at the very top and then start building into um, characters that kind of serve that unity. You know, uh, I mean, if you're casting family, then this becomes self-evident. But it's not just about matching husbands and wives. This this is about building a world that has unity with diversity. So it's not that. Sometimes diversity is to create a unity of the diversified world, you know. Mm-hmm. Depends what your guiding principle is. But, but again, I feel that this, um, you know, organizing principle is always there. So have you ever cast an actor that you thought was really talented but you didn't like their personality. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because I, I feel like that—that that huh. I personally am such a young filmmaker that I don't—I haven't dealt with that. I've, I've liked everyone that I've cast, which is. I also am a young filmmaker. I just have a little bit more experience than you do. Okay, well, great. Uh, that's that's very true. Uh, I can't wait till I have a future under my belt. But uh, it, it seems to me like there are—you hear these stories, um, these like production horror stories, where you have like an insanely talented actor who won't come out of their trailer until they get, you know, their favorite sushi or, oh, I refuse to do that because I don't like the color of it or I'm having a bad day. And it's like, you don't see that on the screen. Yeah. But you hear these stories about how difficult it was to get a performance out of a, a yeah. out of an actor. What's most important to you as far as that casting is concerned? Are you, are you able to just let that go if there's a personal No, problem? I'm not able to let that go. It affects me. It's a question of am I capable and ready to be affected by that, let's call it negative energy in, in on set, um, because the payoff is so amazing. And sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not. You need to know yourself well, you know, and, and me, it rubs me off. I'm like a sponge on set. I really feel the emotional content around me and the actors most prominently. And so if there isn't something happening or if I actually feel some sort of a negative energy, it affects me. And if this happens over many consecutive days, I can see how this would start to undermine the quality of the work because at some point it would become 
exhausting and you are exhausted by many other elements if you're shooting you know week four and you really run out of the original steam in the production uh, and 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 then there is an actor who for some reason makes it really difficult for you then you're cursing your choice and your your wish that you had made a different choice and again so it's a combination of knowing yourself to what extent can you suspend that and be not affected by it what is your emotional stamina to put up with this without jeopardizing the work and what really is the payoff is this really worth are, are the final results so amazing that you're willing to put up with it if the final for me if the final results are amazing then i can run with this for a long time because i will get Re replenished my energy levels get replenished by the products that we're getting every time I get amazing take I said okay this person drives me mad but I love what they do they bring art to my work and and I'm I'm gonna put up with a lot of stuff which I do you know for me the emotional organizing principle is that the quality of the work is the very top everything else dispensable my own emotional, physical input is completely dispensable. And so I am at the service of that vision and that becomes part of that. So yes, I am willing to put up with a lot, but not everything. Sometimes it becomes detrimental to the process and then you have to recognize that and, and foresee this. I had one person coming to an audition that I really liked their performance who just brought in very strange attitude and I have decided to test the ground and work with him a little bit in the audition room and that attitude was prominent and I've decided to just not go there. It was just too difficult. I, 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 I did not want to go there. So can you tell a lot about what that relationship is going to be like based on the audition? Oh yeah. Just like based on the way they walk in the room or I mean based on the way they walk into the room based on the way they respond to your original judgments of what they've done your notes based on the way that you talk about the material you watch them all the time I mean you know the way that you that you dialogue with them in between takes is such a revealing process are they listening or are they already assuming that you're stupid and you don't know what you're talking about are they giving you um, a place at the table as a co-creator or are they choosing to run with this on their own? What is their history? Even that becomes apparent. Have they worked with a lot of really difficult directors and they're all protective, which is different than mm. have they just grown into such scale that they're just doing it because of who they are, which is very different, you know? And the first case, I can work with that because I can warm them up. I can... What I mean by that, I can somehow try to find myself into their trust, into the circle of trust. The latter one becomes about an ego and power game, which I'm disinterested. You know, I, I don't, I don't want to, and I, I'm, I'm really not good at pulling power. It's either you want to be there and you're inspired, or there's no forcing these things. If I have to force these things, it's, I'm hopeless. You know, I'm just not that kind of director who will like, and it's not that I'm not, going to push that it's just it becomes a a, a very different um, way of working for me a one that I don't like and that exhausts me quickly and does not satisfy me hugely so you know those things work against me you know 
I like to feel that the whole set is inspired, which comes with its own challenges because it's impossible to maintain the whole set to be happy and inspired and loving your work. There's really boring moments of the work where you mm -hmm. see people yawning and even your key actors going like, oh my God, what are we doing? And it's hard because you go like, I want you to be in love with my work all the time. But it's hard because not always this work is amazing. Right. Well, it's work. It's work. And sometimes it's boring work. And sometimes you need time to figure things out. And that's when you're not exciting and inspirational. Um, so those things play into this. It sounds like you almost have to be a very conscientious control freak to be a director. Because it goes beyond putting up scenes controlling mise-en-scene and directing actors and performance and talking to your DP about lighting and framing. You Is control really, the wrong word? I, I mean, No, no, it's, 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 it's command, but not in a way of control, more in a way of leading it. Your leadership qualities are so important for this job. Because it's, it's, it's the whole set, it's the whole company. I remember one of the producers during a very heavy week of pre-production where people were putting 14, 16 hours into it. And, and I could feel the team being exhausted, but he grabbed me and with like huge bags under his eyes and completely chucked up on coffee, he said, you know, you're doing something right. People are working so hard. And that's the way that you walk into your office at 7 a.m. That's the way you exit that office at 9 p.m. That's how you give answers to even most stupid questions throughout the day. And that's how you talk about your vision and your material. And that's how you ask for favors. That's how you ask people to do the impossible. All of that is really part of this directing work. It's, you know, it's... it's um, so commanding the set, things that sound cliche-like, to me have to do with your ability to lead this whole production. And at some point it feels so odd because like the metaphor I have in my head is like this production is like, do you know that image from Indiana Jones where that big stone ball starts yes. rolling? And <laughs> so sometimes, not sometimes, most of the time it feels like in pre-production, the thing is that ball. And you need to find ways to control it so that it takes turns and sometimes sharp turns. And sometimes it slows and sometimes it moves fast and sometimes you stop it altogether. And it seems like it's an impossible task because there's so many aspects where it just rolls. It's got this momentum into it. And how do you navigate? Sometimes it's not just the strength because if you stood in front of it and go, stop, you're just being plowed through. Mm -hmm. So how do you do this? It's like you need to be very aware of what's happening around you. You need to be aware of where things fall apart and how do you step in and, and how not to get upset about it and how to work from a place that is always constructive and not personal, which is difficult. This is really difficult. Because you're investing so much of yourself in the process, yeah. right? I mean so when you see that happening, it's hard not to get upset. And I, I wear what's inside on my face so clearly 
you know, I'm a terrible liar. So you can't walk out from a meeting thinking, oh, I think he liked my script. It's, I think it's pretty obvious that, you know, <laughs> there is work to be done. Right. So is there anything that you chose on this particular project to be hands off to just leave it in someone else's hands no no nothing uh, no nothing and no way. and that and that becomes and you know so message to um message to lucky directors who are brought in on projects that are of larger scope um redefine what you think your control levels are you fight for your vision on all levels. Uh, it's up to you how much of your own energy you're gonna put into it. It's exhausting. It's so much easier to just say, okay, they don't want me to be hands on this, I'll be hands off. Those are exactly the things that ruin your film. And I'm not saying that I have won every single battle on 22 Chaser. But I'm saying is that I certainly went to every single fight. I went to every battle and I've tried to win. And at some point it becomes, how do you negotiate your army? Do you let them win this small thing there in order to really get your footing on this front? You know, that becomes part of a whole other equation that you need to navigate through. But, but I, I, I can't. I can't go to sleep thinking that that is out of my control. Right. I can, I can, it's so upsetting for me. And so people would throw me out through the window and I would find a chimney to get back into that room and say, no, we cannot make that decision. And there's a way of exhausting that if you're really determined to do it, eventually people will throw their notebooks down on the table and say, screw you, okay, have it your way. And those are the moments that you want. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you're absolutely convinced that that's your vision and that's what you want to do, because with it comes responsibility. Because guess what? If that decision goes, takes the whole thing into a wrong direction, then then this is this is yours. This is somebody will be fired, and that's you. Right. So, what, what's the biggest thing you learned from directing this feature? I mean, have 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 you grown as a filmmaker? I'm sure you have, just based on experience. But I mean, as far as a self evaluation, what do you think? I'll go personal on this one. Um, lifestyle. If you want to do this long term, you need to learn how to take care of yourself in long range periods of time where you're working under a lot of stress, physical and emotional pressures. Um, I think I've neglected my own health in the process because I needed to be elsewhere. I needed to put all my focus into the making. And I don't think that that is the solution. It's not a sustainable solution. If I was to make a couple of features back to back, I think chances are I would end up in a hospital. Really? Yeah, it's, 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 that's, it can be that demanding and pull out of you so much energy that you really need to be good at recharging your batteries, suspending the stress level, being able to protect yourself from stress levels, being able to negotiate all that in a healthy and sustainable way. There are people who are made for it. There are people who are not made for it, who love it. I think I fall into the second category. I'm not exactly made for it, even though I love doing it. And I think I'm 
okay at doing this, but I'm not exactly, my system is not necessarily designed for it. Uh, even though I got a lot of comments on like how amazingly I handle really stressful situation, because I do, I pay for it in a different ways. And that's, and that's the thing where I have learned through this process to be able not to pay that price. It's not worth it. There are other films that you need to be making um, and so negotiating that kind of heightened reality and heightened demands with what you need to keep on doing this over and over until hopefully old age is a huge learning curve for me. And I just started scratching the front of it. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot I, I need to learn about that because I know that the first thing, which is the easiest for me, is myself to compromise. And that is something that is, I think, mistaken. So a lot of that was self-imposed pressure. Self-imposed pressure, but also not knowing when that thing needs to be dealt with tomorrow. Also okay. not knowing that, or not knowing how, walk out from an incredibly intense conversation and not carry that with me home. And many other things that are like now we're talking about a a personal craft of handling yourself under a lot of pressure that's that is sustained over long periods of time because on the feature we're talking about you're in heat for about three months straight where you work seven days a week and you work about you know 16 hours a day so over a course of three months this becomes something that you need to have um you need to have some sort of mechanisms in place that rejuvenate you, that get that stress out of your body. Otherwise, that body starts doing very unhealthy things. And that's what happened to me, you know, and got, I started getting signals about that. When, so I know that that is something that I need to learn. I've learned a lot from that, and I need to continue learning to, to work in healthy ways. So uh, what would your advice be for uh, young filmmakers? or for future students, uh, people just starting down this path? With respect to this? Yeah, with respect to the filmmaking process, like what to focus on. um. Mm -hmm. Get the things that you need to know tomorrow um, very clear now, today. um, Because what I consistently find is that closer to deadlines, closer to the execution moments, there's something weird that happens to creativity it gets paralyzed because you're now under pressure of timelines. And and so I would say start your preparation in times when you're comfortable, where you're open, where you're breathing, where you're kind of free to experiment with things and get all that work done way ahead of the time so that when you enter into pre-production, you're not making critical choices. You're now really communicating them clearly and you know what they are. And that gives a lot of comfort, you know, which means also demand from your production to provide you with the kind of information you need. So if you're kind of a filmmaker who needs to be on locations in order to really envision the stuff, demand that the locations are dealt with as the first thing before you dive into pre-production. If you're a kind of director who wants to have casting in place before you do the final rewrites on the script, demand that this is exactly what we're doing. You know, if you allow yourself to be fitted into a different model, then you're always catching up with things. And you're not working on your own time, you're kind of working on borrowed time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So where can people watch 22 Chaser? 
oh everywhere it's on all on demand it's on iTunes on Amazon you can purchase it you can we've just uh, wrapped up a pretty wide national distribution played in many key cities in states in Toronto um, I'm traveling to Toronto actually tomorrow because 22 is going to be the opening gala for the 10th uh, Toronto Polish Film Festival so the spotlight is on on that and congratulations thanks I'm very excited about this um, I'm really amazed because I, I haven't been in this position you know to get a national a broad national distribution in states is is kind of like you know a, a great uh, aim and a goal for any filmmaker and 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 so that you know that that's that that's very cool I have to say for me this is really cool I've always traveled the festival circuit with my films I've never really got to a place where you know where I'm hearing this popping everywhere and you know and reviews popping everywhere and things like that that's 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 very exciting so you can type in 22 chaser and there's gonna be a lot of links leading you to how to stream or purchase the film cool uh, what's next you working <laughs> on anything are you, are you gonna direct your own script next time yeah so so there's like two really different visions what well, part of the reaction to 22 I dove into writing this very intense but intimate story it's essentially a two-hander a revenge story at the age of 85 almost completely unfolding in one location my idea is to kind of move into that location and live there with actors and almost shoot this scene for scene in sequence and and just unfold a super comfortable for me process where I'm in touch with every single element and feeling and breathing the story as we make it but life is really funny because whenever you make a plan somewhere out there is going like oh that's going to be hilarious to destroy that idea <laughs> so i've spent a whole summer writing this script and i'm very happy where it is it still needs more work but i'm happy where it is uh, but came through another really large project much larger in scope than 22 chaser somebody saw 22 in Cannes and uh, it's interesting in me as a director for this really big project um, which I'm developing which is scaringly big in terms of production um, very exciting on one hand but also terrifying I'll be honest with you but it has a huge narrative potential so so that's something that fairly recently came uh, into the light and is you know in kind of a dynamic development and finances as we speak actually so it's coming to fairly quickly and so now it's two radically different projects that are kind of competing for my attention and you know not always I have a choice to say this or that sometimes I need to wait on clues from the reality as to which of them should go first because mm -hmm. otherwise something will never happen on it you know so I'm I'm kind of now looking at these two options and, and watching closely which of them will get a full green light first and how to negotiate the two. It's really exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting, <laughs> but also very terrifying. It's very wow. terrifying because 22 happened so recently that I still remember those moments that were very challenging. So, and so, so you haven't forgotten all the things that make you want to quit. Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But it's so funny how your brain plays these tricks where all of a sudden, I, you know, this this rational comes in. It's like, no, 
It's gonna be different. It's gonna be different. This is gonna. You're you're older. You're more experienced. You're gonna utilize the experience from this production. It's gonna be different. And I know that. That's part of the horror that it's gonna be so different. And I'll find myself in the same place trying to catch up, running away from the big ball. <laughs> Even if it's not terribly different, at least you know what you're getting into this time, right? You have a little bit better sense of which is not necessarily a good thing, you know. That kind of naivete it, of right? not knowing what's going to hit me sometimes helps. Mm -hmm. But uh, no, it's exciting. And that's what I want to do, definitely. It's um, it's just, you know, just knowing that it's, it's going to be a dance. Awesome. Well, if um, you need any MFA graduates to be involved, please let me know. Please sign me up because uh, that'll Great. be fun. Great. Thank Thanks. you so much for taking the time to sit down with me. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, I've learned a lot just getting to talk to you right now outside of class. Great. Pleasure. So, we'll have to do this again sometime. Awesome. All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening. That was Rafal Sokolovsky. Feel free to subscribe. Leave us a good review. You can find me on Instagram at rkodinson. And on Facebook, look up Robert Kathern. We'll catch you next time.